Dakota. He nearly broke my hand when we shook this morning. All right, now we're going to move into episode 27 of The Plan. We have been going through this sermon series of the storyline of the Bible for over six months now. And uh, just today, we are finally getting into the ministry of Jesus. And th- the reason why we've been doing, doing it this way is because I believe there's a real value in going through the Old Testament before you get to Jesus. Because one of the things that happens that causes us to miss some of what's going on in Jesus' ministry is that we read the Bible backwards. We start with the last part of the Bible. We read the letters. We read Galatians and Romans and Ephesians because those are written to the church and they seem to be more relevant to our issues and our, our groups. And, and so we start there and we get our understanding of what the Bible is about from the letters. And then we go back and we read the Gospels and we look for that stuff we got from the letters in the Gospels. So we assume that Jesus is talking about all the same stuff as those letters. And then we go back into the Old Testament looking for what the letters were written about through Jesus, and we, we can sometimes find it, but usually we say we don't find it, so we say, oh, well, that's all Old Covenant, and we forget. So we read Jesus looking for the, letter, the stuff from the letters that come after him, and we miss what Jesus is doing to complete the story of the Old Testament. And so as we're go- going through the Bible in the order that, it was, uh, that the events happened, what we're going to see after 26 sermons setting up the ministry of Jesus, we're going to be able to see a fresh perspective of what exactly it was he was doing. So before we get into the ministry of Jesus, we're going to remind ourselves of the story that we've been finding in the Bible. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. So God made the world. He put people in it, and he gave them the job of ruling on his behalf. And then he came down to live with them on the seventh day, and that was the goal of all creation, but we messed it up, and we kept messing it up, and we kept messing it up until finally God said, all right, I'm going to pick one family, I'm going to pick one nation, and they are going to show the rest of you what my plan is supposed to look like. So he committed that through this one family, he was going to restore the plan to the whole world, and that family was Israel. So he gave this one group of people, one particular place, the land of Israel. He came down to live in the temple. He gave them one set of rules to describe their purpose, which is the law of Moses. And the whole world was supposed to be able to look at Israel and see what God is all about and what he means for humanity, or what he he intends for humanity. Unfortunately, the Israelites weren't any better than the rest of us. And so they kept messing up and they kept messing up until finally God at one point says, all right, this does not represent what I want. And so the only way I can show the world who I am is by ending this arrangement and showing that I do not endorse the way the Israelites have been living. And we call that the exile. So he sent them into exile and then he brought some of them back into the land of Judah, but they're still, he hasn't returned the plan uh, to them. And so a group of them, remember in Ezra and Nehemiah, they start trying to get back on track with God, but they prioritize staying away from Gentiles, keeping ethnic purity, and they prioritize this external rule keeping that they can be measured and tracked and enforced on other people. And they figure if we can stay far enough away from the Gentiles, and if we can keep these external rules well enough, God will come back. And they try that for 400 years. And that's the project that they're in when John the Baptist comes out and says, this is not the way God wants us to be restored to him. He wants us to pursue godly character, 
not genetic purity and these meticulous rules. He wants us to have hearts like his. He wants us to genuinely repent. And when John presents that choice to the Jews, he says you, there's the old way of meticulous rule-keeping and, and racial purity or this true way of real repentance, Jesus shows up and he gets baptized to show that he is part of that way. He is part of this genuine way of genuine repentance to restore Israel. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes down, God's presence returns to earth, and a voice from heaven says, this is my son, meaning this is the one I have chosen to lead Israel and restore the plan to the world. Last week, we talked about the temptation where God proved that Jesus was up to the task, but today we're going into when he starts, when he launches this mission that God has put him on. And as we read it with that backstory, we get to see what he's doing from a fresh perspective. So as I go into our opening passage, I want you to remember the coordinates that we keep to keep us oriented in the story. Watch for who's the story about. Watch for where is their home and what's their relationship to their home. How can they meet with God and what did God tell them to do? So we'll pick up in Luke chapter 4, just after the temptation of Jesus. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All right, so that's our, our launching passage. So, who is the story about? It's about Jesus and the Jews. The Jews are God's chosen people. He is still committed to this plan of restoring the, the world through the Jews. And the chosen leader of the Jews is Jesus. God made that pretty much as clear as he ever could at the baptism of Jesus. So, Jesus is the one that is leading the Jews into the next step in God's plan. Where is their home? At this point, the land that God has given them we would call Galilee and Judea because the Romans conquered it and they carved it up into territories and they decided to carve it this way. There's, after Herod, Herod the Great used to rule over all of it on the Romans' behalf and then the Rome, after he died, the Romans said, hey, why don't we just like, cut it into quarters? That, that sounds good. And like, So they're completely arbitrary lines that the Romans made up. But that's, So the fact that it's called Galilee and Judea is a sign that Rome is in charge and the Jews aren't which the Jews being able to rule their own land is supposed to be part of the plan. So that's a problem, right? Now, how can they meet with God? Remember, the question here is, where can they go and know that they're going to meet with God? For about 500 years, there hasn't been a place where they knew they could meet with God. But over the last two weeks, we found out that there is now a place because the Spirit of God descended on Jesus. And so if you want to be in the presence of God, go to Jesus. And anytime you're in Jesus' presence, you're in the presence of God. Now, you know, we know from the whole of Scripture that Jesus is God himself, but in the narrative, that hasn't really become clear. Jesus didn't go around telling everybody, hey, I'm God. That wasn't how it came out. So, but at this point, what, we, what would have been clear to people who are at the baptism was that the presence of God was on Jesus, and so they could encounter God through him. Jesus is the new temple. 
Now, the question is, what is the job that Jesus has been given? That's actually exactly what this passage is about. Jesus goes to a synagogue, and he reads a, a prophecy, and the prophecy is about a person saying, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me for this purpose, and it lists the purpose. So this is Jesus announcing the purpose of his ministry. Now, I skipped over some parts because we're going to cover those in subsequent weeks. But the, the part that we emphasized here was that the Spirit of the Lord is on him to proclaim the good news to the poor. And the phrase good news in Old English is Godspell, which slurred together is gospel. So Jesus' mission, the first part of the mission that we're looking at is proclaiming the good news, proclaiming the gospel. And so... The way the, the, the gospel stories work, in order to draw out the plot, because each gospel kind of puts the plot together a little differently, what we're actually doing is we're taking a bunch of themes that are woven together, and we're kind of separating them out and focusing them on one at a time. So today we're going to look at this gospel proclamation as a key part of the mission that Jesus is on. So we're going to look at how Jesus proclaimed the gospel. And we're going to remember that our goal here is to build our understanding of the gospel on what has come before Jesus rather than what comes after him. We want to read the Bible in order. So, how does Jesus proclaim the gospel? Well, the gospels um, summarize Jesus' mission this way. We'll use Mark's version. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Now, what is the next verse going to say? What did Jesus preach? If we go, like, here's the thing. I only know how to preach the gospel in talking about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, right? Like, I don't know how to do it without those as central facts of the good news. But those haven't happened yet. So what is Jesus preaching? Like, Paul is very clear that he doesn't preach the gospel without the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So if we import what the letters say about what the good news is back into Jesus, we're importing something that would have made no sense to anyone because it hadn't happened yet. Have you ever wondered what Jesus did for three years before the crucifixion and the resurrection? He wasn't announcing to people he was the Messiah. He actually told his disciples to keep that a secret. He wasn't telling them to put their faith in his atoning sacrifice because he hasn't made it yet. Like, what is he doing? So here's how the Gospels actually summarize what Jesus is saying. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That's the Gospel. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, for most of my life thus far... That didn't make any sense to me because I, wasn't, I only knew the gospel in the sense of what Paul talks about. And Paul doesn't really talk about the kingdom very much. And so to say the kingdom of God has come near, like I also mainly focused on Matthew, which says kingdom of heaven. So I assumed that the kingdom of heaven was heaven. I was like, heaven is near. Like there's a way to heaven that's really close now. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, if he was speaking to a group of people who only knew the Old Testament, To say the kingdom of God has come near is exactly what they would have expected the gospel to be. Why? Because Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting where the Old Testament talks about the good news, which is in Isaiah 52. Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Now, the Greek 
kingdom can also be translated as the reign of God is near. So when Jesus says the reign of God is near, good news, he's pointing right at this passage. Now what is this passage about? This passage isn't about individual people getting away to go to the good place instead of the bad place. This passage is about the restoration of Israel to its plan, to the, its place in God's plan to restore the whole world. It says, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. You see, in the Old Testament, God's plan is always to save the world, but he's committed to doing it through Israel. So then, when they say God reigns, where does God reign from? Jerusalem or Zion. God's committed. He's already said, and God doesn't break his word. God doesn't go back on his plans that he's going to use Israel to rule over the whole world and restore everyone to him. So when he says the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God only comes to the world according to God's promises through Israel. So he's saying God is ready to restore Israel to the plan. He's ready to undo the exile. He's ready to bring us back. All the stuff he said he was going to do when this exile was over is just around the corner. But he's not just announcing something good. He's also calling them to action. He says, repent and believe. Now, again, when we read this backwards, we read that as repent of the individual bad things you've done and believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the, de- rose from the dead, right? That's what we think of, but that's not what they would have heard at that time because they didn't know those things yet. When he says repent and believe, you, can, you could also completely accurately translate that as return and be faithful to the good news. You could even go so far as to say return and obey would be accurate translations of those Greek words, which again, Jesus is referring to the Old Testament. We've used this passage several times. What did God say would happen at the end of the exile in Deuteronomy? He said, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and gather you again. What he's saying is, God is ready to, to get the plan back on track again, so you should return to him and get with it. It's, imagine that the, the, God's plan is a train, and the train broke down, and they've been stranded for 400 years, and people have gotten off the train, and they've wandered around, and they've checked out the shops, and they've gotten some lunch. And now the conductor's saying, hey, the train is repaired. It's about to leave, so get back on the train. That's what he's saying. The plan is ready to move, so it's time to come back and get on the train and get on board with what God is doing. So this is what Jesus is announcing. Jesus called the Jews to repent, which means return to God, because he was finally ready to restore Israel to his plan. Now, as we understand that the gospel Jesus was preaching was built on the Old Testament and built on the idea of the mission that God had called Israel to, when you realize that, you start to pick up on a theme that you may not otherwise see, that doesn't quite make sense otherwise in Jesus' preaching, which is that Jesus is in a little bit of a hurry. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is in a hurry. I'll give you a couple, I could have given you a lot of examples, I narrowed it down to my top three. Here's the first one. Later in Luke chapter four, it says, uh, Jesus is in Capernaum, and the people tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that's why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now that passage may not stand out to you all that much, except that we often view Jesus' ministry as a ministry of healing and reaching individual people. 
Like, the chosen is really great at that, at depicting how Jesus found individual people and turned their lives around and that aspect of his ministry. But in this story, what we find is that means in that town, there were still sick people who hadn't been healed. There were still blind people who couldn't see. There were still people who needed to be forgiven. They had reason for Jesus to stay and do more one-on-one ministry, but he says, I can't. I'm sorry. I need to move on because I need to get to all the towns, which must mean he doesn't have all the time in the world. Right? He has to get to the other towns before something. And that's strange to us with the way we typically look at Jesus' mission because Again, the gospel I know how to preach doesn't even go into an effect until after the resurrection. So why would there possibly be be a rush before the resurrection, right? The gospel isn't even taking an effect yet. So why? Like, this is training time, right? Like, this is is when you, like, you can use this time for whatever you want because the gospel isn't in effect yet. But instead, Jesus has a sense of urgency. In fact, such a sense of urgency that he actually... He actually splits his team up so they can hit more, time, more towns at the same time. In Luke 9, it says that when Jesus had called the 12 together, we'll talk more next week about the significance of the 12 disciples, but they're his, his 12 main, main disciples. He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, I always thought that this was Jesus like training his disciples in evangelism. Like, this is them get, like, maybe this is how you use the time before the gospel really comes into effect, is you just, you, you, it's, hey, we can experiment, we can send you out, you can, you can try it out and see what works and, and get your chops as a missionary, right? But Jesus gives them, the, the main reason why the gospels give us these passages is to give us the instructions that Jesus shows, gives to his disciples. And those instructions, to be honest, are not actually great instructions for a missionary, Here's what he tells the 12. Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake their ta- shake, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Rock, is that how they trained you guys to do? Like, don't bring any resources with you. Don't bring anything with you. Never move. And, and the instant you face opposition, leave. Right? Is that how we do missions work? No. In fact, he, he's, he's even more explicit when he gets a group of 72 together and he sends them out. And he says, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What's the theme of the instructions he's giving the disciples? This is not like timeless advice for missionaries. This is how you get the word out in a hurry. Travel light. Don't bother time with niceties on the road. Stay at the first house that, that will have you. Don't worry about finding the best amenities. Eat whatever they give you. Don't worry about if it's ritually clean. Don't worry if it's the best inn in town. Just wherever you can get, stay there, eat, proclaim the news. And if they don't want to hear it, then wipe the dust off your feet and get out of town because there's more towns to visit. Get in, proclaim the good news, get out. That's what he's doing. As fast as possible, we need to hit every town that we can. So Jesus worked to spread the word as quickly as possible. 
And when you recognize that Jesus is in a bit of a hurry, you will also pick up themes in his preaching where he talks about why he's in a bit of a hurry, why there's a sense of urgency in his mission. So the main place we're going to be is in Luke chapter 12 and 13, and these passages go pretty close together, pretty much the rest of the sermon. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Saying, hey, there's gonna, you're running out of time. There's going to come a moment when it will matter whether you've decided to follow me or not, and if you do, it'll, you'll be glad you did. And if you didn't, you'll be upset that you didn't. Now, we typically, because we read the Bible backwards, we will typically assume that Jesus is not talking to the people in front of him. He's talking to us about his second coming. But he's not talking about that. It's pretty clear in this passage he's not talking about that because he's going to move on to talk about how important that specific generation is. And he's going to to call them out for not recognizing how important their time period is, that specific generation. He says... When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky. How is it you don't know how to interpret this present time? This present time is the time when that's running out. He's talking about right now. There's a limited window. And right after this, he tells a story, which for the, for, the, for the life of me, I could not have figured out on my own, except that I learned to read it together with what we just read. This next story, this next parable doesn't make sense to me, except when you say he's, he's talking about the same thing. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What is that story about? Is that about a good way to handle legal disputes? Is that something about just generic forgiveness? No. It's a story about that specific time in Israel's history. He's saying, if you recognize the times, you would recognize that you are on your way to a court date. And if you get to that court date without resolving the problem, it's not going to go well for you. It's like there is a plea deal on the table. Take it, because if you don't take it and you go to court, it's not going to go your way. You're not going to get out until you've paid every last cent. So Jesus is in a hurry because Israel was running out of time to repent. As a a nation, as a people, Israel was running out of time to repent. Now, why were they running out of time? Is it because God was tired of them? Is it because God only gives us a limited number of choices and a limited number of chances, and they were about to spend the last one? No. No. In fact, as we carry right on into the next verse, which is 13.1, Jesus will address that. What is coming? Why are they on this timeline? Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Okay, now this is the latest controversial story going around. You know how the latest outrage making it around social media. 
that gets everybody angry and, and splits people on partisan lines, right? So these Galileans from northern area of Israel had gone down to Jerusalem where the Roman governor was in charge and they'd gone to make sacrifices at the temple and Pilate had executed them. We don't know why, but we know that Pilate executed them and it seems like they were in the process of sacrifices. So he may have even killed them around the temple. So this is a big deal. and People were very upset. And they asked what Jesus thought about this. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So they brought this up. And, and at this time, remember that for, for Israel, they're thinking in times of their calling. And one of the big obstacles to their calling is the fact that the Romans control their, their kingdom. If they don't, if, if, as long as they're ruled over by the Romans, they can't fulfill the plan the mission that God has given for them. And so when the Romans commit this fresh outrage, they're quite upset. This is not just a question about, like when, uh, this is not just a question about do bad things happen because of sin. This is a question of, is this judgment? And does that mean that they were worse than the rest of us? He says, no, no, they weren't worse than the rest of you. They just met their fate sooner. Because if you, meaning the Jews, the Jewish people, don't repent, you will also perish. Meaning you will also die that way. How did they die? They were killed by Romans. Then Jesus pulls up another example to make his point. He says, or the 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. A tower fell in Jerusalem and killed some people. Was it because they were more guilty than the rest of them? No. Israel as a people were following the wrong path. They just met that end sooner. But if Israel doesn't repent, if the Jews don't change course, they will meet the same fate. And what fate is that? Dying from falling buildings or Roman swords. See, when we read the Bible backwards, we often assume that Jesus is constantly talking about final judgment. Now, Jesus does talk about final judgment, but he also talks about a more short-term judgment that is coming on the people of Israel. And this is one of those places where he says, if you keep going down the path that you're on, you're going to get destroyed by swords and falling masonry, falling buildings. And if you're open to that message that Jesus is teaching, you can actually pick up on it more often. For instance, we've already seen one place where Jesus alludes to that. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. He's talking about the towns that reject Jesus. Now, again, we often think that that's talking about final judgment, but there's two problems with that. Number one is that final judgment does not go town by town, right? We get judged as individuals. We don't get judged based on the town we grew up in or the one you died in or the one you spent the most. Like, that's not how judgment works. So when he talks about judgment on towns, he's talking about the things that happen to those towns. And we also know that because, again, he's quoting the Old Testament. Because to say that their fate will be worse than Sodom is to use a phrase from the Old Testament that people used for really terrible conflicts. In Lamentations, the poet is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says this, The punishment of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment without a hand turned to help her. Why is it worse for Jerusalem than for Sodom? Because Sodom, they did get fire and brimstone, but they got it in a day. Jerusalem was under siege for three years. They starved to death. They cannibalized each other. They suffered unimaginably. It's much worse to be in Jerusalem. 
And so when Jesus says it'll be worse for them on the day that judgment comes than it was for Sodom, it means that it's going to take longer for them to get destroyed than it did for Sodom. So what's actually happening in Jesus' message here is he's saying that Israel's running out of time because they had chosen a path that leads to destruction. They are headed 90 miles an hour toward a brick wall, and eventually they're going to hit it. It's not that God is tired of them. It's that the actions they have taken will eventually lead them to destruction. That's where, it, that's where that path leads. God isn't, asking, God isn't calling them to leave this path and go onto this path because he's arbitrary and nitpicky. It's because this path leads to destruction and this path leads to life. And this helps us to understand what Jesus is working to accomplish in his ministry. Because he, he, right after telling that story, or talking about um, the ways that the Jews will perish, he tells this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on the fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not then cut it down. That parable is Jesus telling the story of Israel. Israel has had chance after chance to turn away from this path and to be the kind of people that I've called them to be, and they have not done it, and they're running out of time. But I am here to give them one more chance. One more chance to be a part of what God is doing. I'm going to call them. I'm going to fertilize them. I'm going to give them everything they need to choose to be what God called them to be the entire time because we do, I'm not willing to just abandon them to their fate. Later he's in the same chapter, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. It's a powerful image because one of the things they'll find after forest fires is uh, dead mother birds with live chicks under them because they protected them with their bodies. Jesus came because he loves those people. And his ministry, the urgency of his ministry is that he wants to save every single Jew that he can to be a part of what God is doing in the world and to avoid that destruction. That urgency comes from his love for his people. So Jesus' mission was to save the Jews from destruction and restore them to their place in God's plan. Now, I'm going to give you a spoiler. We haven't done spoilers since we've been in the New Testament because Jesus is here. But I'm going to tell you about something that happens after the story of the New Testament. Uh, if you were to take the place where Jesus is ministering and you were to fast forward 40 years, what would you see going on in Galilee? Here's what Josephus tells us. Josephus is a Jewish historian who was born just after, a few years after the resurrection. The Romans treated the country according to the law of war, burning the places in the plain or stealing away the cattle that were in the country and killing whatsoever appeared capable of fighting perpetually and leading the weaker people as slaves into captivity so that Galilee was all over filled with fire and blood, nor is it exempted from any kind of misery or calamity. Most of the Jews refused to repent, and Galilee and Judea were ultimately destroyed within a generation. Within a hundred years, it would be illegal for Jews to even live in Jerusalem. Communities would be utterly devastated, 
and they would lose a significant presence in the promised land for almost 2,000 years. So Jesus' warnings were not, um, they were real, and they were true. The reason, I think, part of the reason why we tend to read the Bible backwards is because it, we, it seems to be the easiest way to make sure that what we're saying is relevant, because we start with what's said about the church age. Uh, but, so the question then is, what, if, if this is a warning that Jesus presented to the Jews, and the, the time is has already over, like the Romans already went and destroyed them, then what does that mean for us? I think that we can learn a lot from the fact that this is the message that Jesus was preaching to his, his contemporaries, to that generation, because it can help us to keep our presentation of the gospel uh, in line with what he's saying. Because one of the things that it teaches us is that the message of Jesus isn't just about the afterlife. It's about our lives in the here and now. Because when we, we will often say, hey, the gospel is about you going to the good place instead of the bad place. So give your life to Jesus so you'll go to the good place. In which case, the best possible arrangement, if you can time it right, would be to live your life whatever way you want and then repent right before you die, right? Because you still get to go to the good place, but you do whatever you want in that time. And our, our best response to that is often, yeah, but you don't know when you're going to die. You could get in a car wreck on the way home, and then you'll end up in the bad place. So make sure you do it now, just in case. As if the only thing we have to offer people is a better retirement plan. But the gospel is about what happens in the here and now. What Jesus' presentation of the gospel teaches us is there are real-life consequences for the choices we make about whether and how to follow Jesus. For the Jews, their decision to follow Jesus or not would affect whether the Romans destroyed them or not. It would affect whether they were even allowed to live in their homeland. It would affect the fate of their nation, the fate of their communities. Because following Jesus would shape their responses to things going on around them. If you read the story of what happened to Israel that led to their destruction, and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you can say if they had done what Jesus was preaching, those things would not have happened. There are real-life consequences for our communities, for our nations, for ourselves, if we follow Jesus. And if we follow him faithfully, your home life will be different. Your relationships will be different. Your career will be different. Your town will be different. Like, it changes things all around us constantly. The gospel has been the greatest force for good the world has ever seen over the last 2,000 years, regardless of how many people it put into the good place instead of the bad place. We haven't seen that side yet, right? We haven't gotten to go to the other side and find out who all made it into glory. But we have seen the effects of the gospel this side, and they are profound. They are amazing. And so as we spread the good news about Jesus, we should absolutely tell people that eternity with God or without him is on the line. But also we should tell people that today is the best day to repent because the gospel can change our tomorrow. Your life can go differently tomorrow because you committed or recommitted to follow Jesus today. Now, hear me very carefully, very clearly. I didn't say easier. Your tomorrow could be much, much harder because you decided to follow Jesus, but it will be better. It will be closer in line with what God made you for, who he designed you to be. It will be more meaningful. It will be truer. But that's why today is the best day to give your life to Jesus or to recommit your life to Jesus or to deal with whatever obstacle you're facing that's keeping you from following him faithfully because it's what your life is meant to be. 
in this life. And your life will be better. It will be more godly. It will be more what he made you to be if you commit. So as we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what is the next step ahead of you in following Jesus? What obstacles do you have in front of you that are keeping you from following him faithfully? How would your life be different if you were all in? Consider what your life can look like following Jesus and then ask, what, what are, what's my next step? And I'll give you some of the next steps that we offer, that, that we, can, we can help you with. There are a lot of things God could be putting on your heart. But if you haven't given your life to Jesus, then I guarantee you that's one thing that he's putting in front of you. Today is the best day to give your life to Jesus. And if you haven't done that yet, you can uh, come forward during the final song and talk to me. You can talk to one of our ministers after church. If you're online, you can get in touch with a Christian that you uh, know and trust, or you can get in touch with the church. But today is the best day to give your life to Jesus. If you're finding that you need help in figuring out what that looks like, you need partners to go alongside you as you are living a life committed to Jesus, I would suggest that you join one of our small groups or our service teams, because that's how we build each other up. We, we pray together. We have fun together. We, we learn each other's stories. We build each other up in those times of temptation or challenge. A service team can, can get you more outwardly focused as you help other people, whether they're serving in the church or serving people in our community. If you want to join one of those teams, you can mark that on your Connect card. And finally, if you want to be a part of a church family that is dedicated to following Jesus and building his kingdom here and transforming the community where we have been planted, that's who this church is seeking to be, and you can uh, place your membership with us. And we have a Connect class that we offer where we get together on a Sunday afternoon. We talk about who we are, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. If you'd like to be in one of those classes, you can check the box on your Connect card as well. You could have something completely different that God is putting on your heart. And as we stand and sing our final song, I'd encourage you to be open to what he's prompting you to do and how he's calling you to follow him. So please join us as we sing.